So yesterday on my Saturday morning bike ride, I was riding with uh, two of my longtime uh, riding buddies. Uh, Don is a retired uh, chair of the PE department at uh, Zeus Pacific University, soccer coach. Uh, my friend Dick has a, a son and now a grandson, big football players. And so oftentimes when we're riding our bikes, we talk about sports. And so yesterday we were talking about how much money all these athletes and coaches are getting. Uh, I'm not sure how much money it took to lure uh, Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma to come to USC and coach football, but it's a boatload of money, right? And so we're talking about all this, and we're talking about how oftentimes it's true in the sports world that um, success and greatness is measured in dollars and how much you're paid. Have you ever thought about how to measure success and greatness? Or more importantly, or kind of parallel with that, have you ever given thought to how our culture measures success and greatness? I have a son in the military, and the military measures success and greatness in a lot of ways. Uh, there's such a thing as a battlefield promotion, right? You've heard of that? So some guy's a sergeant or even a lower rank, a corporal in battle, and in the midst of the battle, his sergeant is, is killed or wounded, and all of a sudden now he's promoted on the battlefield. Um, in the military, they have what's called chest candy. You guys still got your chest candy home, Tom? Yeah. Both of those little medals? Yeah, yeah both of them. Yeah. So uh, this Friday, we're going to be in North Carolina celebrating our son's uh, retirement, 22 years in the Navy. And I'm confident that when he stands up for that retirement ceremony, that right here on his chest is going to be all the medals and awards he's accumulated over the last 22 years. Uh, chest candy. And so that happens in the sports world. Um, it happens in the military. It happens in the business world. Uh, we give awards for the outstanding salesperson. I find it kind of comical driving down the freeway past the big RV sales place and they advertise, this guy sold the most toy haulers this month. This guy's, you know, they got them all listed off. Um, and so we celebrate champions in all of these different arenas. Sports, uh, the military, business. We even do it in churches. Have you noticed this? Maybe you're not exposed to the same stuff I am. I hope not. But uh, oftentimes I'll be reading, and sometimes it'll be in a magazine. Sometimes it'll maybe be online somewhere. The top ten fastest growing churches in America. And, and we acknowledge uh, success and greatness, if you will. Uh, not only the fastest growing churches in America, but they'll be the ten largest churches in America. And so we have in all these arenas... Measures for success and greatness. But the question I want you to think about this morning is this. How does God measure greatness? Because the way God measures greatness is a lot different than the world in which you and I live. And so we're going to come again to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to drop in on another one of these great conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. And if, you're, if you've been reading through the Gospels with me this year, you've noticed in all four of the Gospels, and you've noticed on more than one occasion, one of the disciples as a group, one of their favorite topics of conversation is about what? 
greatness. Greatness. And so this morning the passage really kind of zeroes in and focuses on kind of these kind of conversations and it becomes very, very personal. And so in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, this is what we read. So now Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside. Okay, so he's peeled the twelve out of this traveling caravan of followers and disciples. He's pulled the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. How many times has he had this conversation with them, telling them what to expect when he gets to Jerusalem? Over and over again. Well, here it is again. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, what would you expect the response to that conversation to be? I, I can think a lot, a lot of possible conversations that would flow out of the words of Jesus. But this is where it goes. <laughs> James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Imagine that, what a surprise. <laughs> Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life. A ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept on crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. So throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. <laughs> we learn here a significant truth. 
The path to greatness is found where? Serving others. That is how God measures greatness. Greatness is found in a life given to serving others. And I will tell you very honestly that one of the great challenges in the the American church in the 21st century, and I would even say even in the last century, one of the great challenges in the American church is too many people come to the church looking for service rather than looking to... I'm sorry, but get it backwards, right? They're looking for serve us rather than service. And so often, our mindset is, what's in it for me? What can I get? And one of the things we miss is that God measures greatness. How? Serving others. And so I want you to see kind of four ideas that kind of struck, struck me as I reflected on this passage. And the first thought about greatness is this. Is that the problem in the pursuit of greatness is selfishness and pride. Can you imagine James and John coming to Jesus and asking for the two primary seats? When Jesus comes into his kingdom, what they were asking for is they wanted to be prime minister number one and prime minister number two. Chief spots in the kingdom. (laughs) Oh, and Matthew tells us, interestingly, that when they approached Jesus with this request... It was also their mother, Salome, that proposed this question to Jesus. It wasn't just the two boys, it was mom. And if if you put the pieces together, I think, correctly in the scriptures, if you put the pieces together, Salome is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Salome is Jesus' aunt. And that would make her two boys, James and John, Jesus' cousins. So, the boys and mom are pitching to Jesus. We we want the prime spots in the kingdom. Wow. And do you notice how they approach the, the, the proposition to Jesus? They don't come straight out and say, here's what we want you to do for us. How do they pose the question? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Have you ever had someone say to you, Would you do a favor for me? How, how do you respond to that question? <laughs> what is it you want? Of course, Jesus did that, you know. So if I said to Steve, you know, Would you do a favor for me? Steve's first question, response ought to be, what is it you want me to do? I want you to give me a deal on a Porsche. Can you swing it out? Yeah. So they bring mom, Jesus' aunt, mom's sister, and they give this wide open request do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says to them, well, what, what can I give for you? What is it that you want? Of course, Jesus already knew, right? And one of the things that struck me about this, I don't know if this is funny to you or not, I find humor in so much of Scripture. James and John have just recently returned from a little road trip with Jesus. 
And if you were to go back in your Bible one chapter to chapter 9, you would find Peter, James, and John with Jesus, guess where? Mount of Transfiguration. And so they've just come back from this awesome experience of seeing Jesus in His glory and the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son, listen to Him. Elijah and Moses have come and had conversation with Jesus and they've been privileged to be a part of all this. I don't know, did that trigger this idea in their mind that uh, we like the top spots in the kingdom? The other ten disciples responded, how? Indignation, what a surprise. And so what is it that would motivate these guys to make this request? That's a pretty proud, proud, prideful request, isn't it? Can you imagine at the next elders meeting, I'm sitting with our elders and I tell them, I'd like you to do something for me. Of course, they're all great guys and they agree right away. Whatever, you know, what, what is it you'd like? I would like you to declare that I am the best pastor that has ever served the church in Norwalk. And they would look at me how? <laughs> what is wrong with you, right? 111 years of history, and, and you think you're the greatest? Our church has had some great pastors. Dr. Kutanik was an amazing Bible teacher. He was here for 17 years. Uh, Howard Mays was here, I'm not sure how long, three, four years maybe. Um, I've admired Howard for many, many years, a very gifted man of God. Um, other pastors that have served. What, what would possess me to ask them to do that? Right. And the other thought that struck me is, so James and John stand in this long line of great servants of God, two of whom they just met on the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah. And they're going to push themselves all the way to the front of the line. We want the right hand, we want the left hand. See, the problem with greatness is all found in our, our motivations and our desires. Have you, have you ever contemplated greatness in your life? Come on. I remember as a young baseball player, <laughs> one of my ambitions, I was a catcher, and one of my ambitions from early on, age 8, 9, 10, along in there, was someday I want to be a catcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I want to be able to be in that catcher's box behind home plate. You know, I had visions of greatness, but I couldn't hit a curveball. <laughs> and so here's these disciples, and asking Jesus for the top seats in the kingdom. Pride, selfishness, Wanting position, wanting status. <laughs> the second thing I notice in this passage is the path to greatness is clear. Couldn't be any clearer. Because Jesus says, first of all, what it's not. 
You know that the Gentiles lorded over those in their charge. And it's interesting, the word translated here, lording it over, is the word lord and the word down. And it's the idea of downward motion, downward action. That's the way the Gentiles lead. That's the way the Gentiles root. From on top, pushing down, lording it over. And he says the great men, they exercise authority. What seems to have more the idea of exercising their their position, their status, their personal uh, charisma, if you will. But there's this, this thing of lording it over, pushing down. That's how the Gentiles do it. I couldn't help this week thinking about this. One of my friends is a huge Georgia Bulldogs fan. Lived many years in Georgia, met his wife in Georgia. A Georgia girl through and through, and now they're here in California. But they decided, because Georgia has been the number one ranked college football team throughout the whole football season, and Georgia is playing Alabama, this was yesterday, Georgia was going to play Alabama in the SEC championship game. This was huge for David Morrow. And so he decided he was going to bust the bank and get to Georgia to watch this football game. So he bought four tickets to the SEC championship game, cha-ching, for himself and his wife, his niece and her husband. He bought two airplane tickets to get he and his wife from here to Georgia. He rented a car. And so he made all these plans, spent all this money, invested all this to go to Georgia. Only to be told Wednesday morning by the owner of the dealership where he's the manager of parts and service, the owner of the dealership says, if you're going to be gone for the weekend, you need to turn in your resignation. Well, Dave had cleared this weekend off with his immediate supervisor, had cleared this weekend off with the general manager of the dealership, touched all the bases he thought he was supposed to touch, and now the owner steps in and says, if you, if you go for the weekend, uh, you, I want your letter of resignation. And so Dave went to work Thursday morning with a letter of resignation in his pocket. And... Uh, his immediate supervisor, Cody, was on the phone with him on the way to work. He said, are you still planning to take the weekend off? Yeah, I've got to go. I spent all this money. I'm going. He said, okay, well, let's talk when you get to work. Well, the good news is his boss backed off. And I think Dave still has a job. I hope. But what it illustrated for me is how many people lead. His boss leads by bullying, which is a form of lording it over. And that's how the world operates. When you're owner of a half a dozen, six or eight car dealerships and you have more money than anybody else on the planet except maybe Bill Gates, um, you know, you can bully and lord it over. And Jesus says, you know, it's, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. And so that's what it's not. What is it? Well, Jesus says, it is not this way among you. And he talks about being a servant and being a slave. Do you see those two words in your text? Be a servant and be a slave. And those words are very similar, but very, very different. The first word translated servant is... If I would say the word in the English, it would come through diakonos, and it's the word that's translated deacon. 
And the idea of the one who's a servant, the, the, the picture, the image of that word, is someone who's hustling around doing servant-type tasks, stirring up dust as he's serving others. The servant was a hired servant, so he was paid. Typically, it was that word would describe someone with, with menial labor. Physical labor, menial labor. A servant. The second word translated slave is also a fascinating word because that word describes a slave who is property of the owner. He has been purchased by the owner. He is owned by the owner. He has no freedoms. He has no rights. He has nothing. He is a, a slave indebted to his master. And so Jesus says to us, through this passage of scripture that the path to greatness in God's kingdom is found in serving others it's not to be like the world in which you and I live the way that the world describes greatness, the way, the way that the world measures success is different God's measure for greatness in his kingdom is found in serving others. That's clear in this passage. It's not like this. It's like this. And then the pattern for greatness is found in Jesus. What a surprise, right? What, could there be a greater example of service than Jesus? You know, the passage we were reading says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Have you guys ever had the experience of, kind of you're, you're talking to your wife about dinner out somewhere, and you're, you're kind of talking about options, and we could eat here, we could eat there. And have you ever had your wife say to you, because one of those options is like a soup plantation kind of option where you have to walk through a line and kind of take care of yourself and serve yourself. Have you ever had the wife say something to you like, I want to be served. I don't want to serve myself. Anyone else ever experienced that besides me? Come on. Bonnie's the only person in the room with their hand up. Come on, Bonnie. There you go. A little higher. Oh, there. I'll get a couple more. Um, and so, you know, and all of us are kind of wired that way. I, I'd rather be served, right? I'd always rather be served. But with Jesus, it was different. His pattern was simple. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. The passage that that read, read for us this morning as we began is a passage that describes what it meant for Jesus to serve us. Because it talks about him being in the form of God, humbling himself. He emptied himself, the scripture says, and took on the form of what? A servant, becoming a man, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And for Jesus to become a servant, Scripture uses this word, he emptied himself. And that's a fascinating word in the original language. That's a word that would describe a general who's leading his troops into battle. 
And the general would be dressed in a very distinctive uniform, the coloring, the, the emblems upon it, everything about it marked him out as the general. He's the one in charge. He's the one leading the troops. And typically what would happen when those troops went into combat with that general with them, he would take off that uniform. He would take off that coat and lay it aside so he looked like all the rest of the troops. And the word that was used to describe that process of removing that uniform and laying it down is the same word that's used here. He emptied himself. Why would a general do that in combat? Take off his uniform? He's target number one. But when he takes off his uniform, guess what? He now looks like everybody else. And so that's the word that the Apostle Paul uses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe what it meant for Jesus to leave the glories of heaven and come to this planet, becoming a man, and as Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, becoming a servant, obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Jesus was different. He came not to be served, but to serve. And, what's that last phrase say? Give his life a ransom for many. That in serving his life, his death, paid the ransom, paid the debt that you and I owe, that we might be released and free, given forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That's a great servant. That's a great servant. So Jesus is our, our pattern, our example. And then I noticed that kind of as this chapter ends, it talks about this encounter that Jesus had with Bartimaeus, the blind man. And so I want you to think about this for a minute. Because this, is a, this encapsulates everything that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. This experience with Bartimaeus gives them a picture of exactly what he's talking about. Because Jesus has left Galilee. He's on his way south to Jerusalem. He's just told them what? I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again from the dead. He's laid this all out. And so Jesus is a man on a mission, right? He's headed to Jerusalem. He knows exactly what lies ahead. He knows exactly what's coming. And so those, those little hands that were in the manger in Bethlehem, their destiny was where? On the cross with nails. Those little feet that were in the manger in Bethlehem had a destiny. They were headed to the cross, headed to those nails that would nail them to the cross. And so Jesus is a man on a mission. He knows exactly what's coming. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And on his way with his disciples, he gets interrupted. 
You ever been interrupted on a mission? You ever been focused and intent on something that you need to do, you're on your way, and, and some, something or someone interrupts you? Slows down your progress? Hinders your forward motion? You're on the freeway to an important meeting, and all of a sudden the traffic comes to a complete stop. What's your first response? <laughs> Last Monday I was on my way out to the National Cemetery and I was riding in the funeral coach with the funeral director. And we were going out the 60 freeway and all of a sudden traffic starts slowing down, comes to a total complete stop. We have an appointment at Riverside National Cemetery. Service starts at 1115. At the National Cemetery, they don't start at 11.16. They start at 11.15. We're, we're on our way. And so I open up my phone to sing alert. Oh, there's an accident that just happened a few minutes ago up ahead of us about mm, half a mile. It shouldn't be too bad. And we sat still and sat still and sat still. And I'm looking on my phone trying to get news. And uh, There's a big rig flipped over up ahead of us. <laughs> It's blocking four of the five lanes. We're going to be here a while. And I'm one of those strange, weird people that's kind of wired. I never go anywhere on time. I'm always 15 to 20 minutes early, and we're dead stopped on the freeway. And so I'm in total turmoil inside, right? Jesus never experienced that total turmoil thing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And here's this blind beggar crying out, Have mercy on me. Probably I would have just kept on going, right? Because I'm in a hurry. I've got, I got things to do, places to go, people to see. But Jesus isn't like that because he's a servant. There you go. We got that keyword again. He's a servant. And so what does Jesus do? He stops and serves. And one of the things that fascinates me here is, so this blind man is a beggar, and he understands, because he's being told he can't see, he's being told that Jesus is coming, and so he's crying out, have mercy on me, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus says, you know, bring him to me. This blind man would not have had the ability on his own, I don't think, to get from wherever he is on the side of the road or wherever to Jesus. What would have to happen? Someone would have to probably help him, lead him. And isn't it fascinating that when he comes to Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? What's he say? What can I do for you? Do those words sound familiar? When James and John came to Jesus, what did he say to them? What can I do for you? And I don't know, this is just kind of my thing maybe, but it just struck me that Jesus treated this blind beggar the exact same way he treated two of the guys in the inner circle of his disciples treated in the exact same way. What can I do? 
And I think that struck me a lot. Because I don't think I'm wired that way. I don't think, apart from God's Spirit taking control of me in a very special way, I don't think my normal response to the homeless guy on the river when I'm riding my bike by, that my response to him would be the same as it would be for any of you. I don't think it would be the same. And guess what? It ought to be. It should be. And so we have this picture of Jesus serving a blind beggar as the, the image, the illustration of everything he's just said. You don't lord it over others. You don't exercise the pressure of your influence or your personality. But you serve. You serve. And so this raises questions for me in my own life, and I share these with you. How am I doing with this thing of serving others? How are you doing with this thing of serving others? If you were to give yourself a score, one to ten, you know, how am I doing in that thing of serving others? Is, is that high on my list of priorities? Is that something I think about? Or is that something I give very little thought and attention to? When I, when I come to the church on Sunday morning, do I come with a spirit of, Lord, who can I serve this morning? Who can I minister to? Is there someone I can pray with? Is there somebody that needs for me to give a word of encouragement, a word of help? I fear that too often we come more with the expectation of kind of where I started earlier. Serve us. What's in it for me? Instead of coming, service. How can I serve? How can I help? What can I do? Um, how am I doing in that arena? And then I ask myself, what might happen if God's people truly became servants and lived like them? What would happen in our homes if husbands understood that their great joy should be serving their wives? What would happen in our homes if wives had that mindset? Serving parents with a mindset, serving their children. How might things be different at the workplace if, if, if we went to work with that mindset of, Lord, who can I serve today? Who can I help? Who can I encourage? What would happen in our neighborhoods if we looked for neighbors to serve, neighbors to help, neighbors to encourage? I wonder if the Lord would open opportunities for the gospel to be shared because we adopted more and more that spirit of being a servant. What would happen in, in our city? What would happen in our city if we as the Grace Brethren Church in Norwalk were known as a group of people that love to serve? We're eager to serve. We're, we're helping here. We're helping there. Vet uh, mentioned earlier before he led us in prayer that uh, we're going to gather Saturday morning. Um, and the city has another one of those street cleaning projects. You know all the details. I don't. So you need to talk to Vet. But what would happen if a bunch of us showed up Saturday mornings to serve our city? What might God do? I don't know. 
<laughs> I told him to find that. So who is God calling me to serve? Who is God calling you to serve? A family member, spouse, child, neighbor, co-worker, friend. I'd love for our city to be surprised by a church that cares and wants to serve. I would love to surprise our city with service. Colonel Mark Penfold leads our uh, ministry to our chaplains around the world. And in his prayer letter this month, he talked about the typical Thanksgiving meal that takes place when a unit is deployed overseas. And uh, there's a whole process of preparation that goes on. But what happens when the troops arrive at the mess hall for their Thanksgiving meal, their turkey and their ham and their mashed potatoes, as they're lined up and they come through the line to receive their, their food, if they're paying attention and they look up, all the men who are serving them are the officers, the lieutenants, the captains, the colonels. And many of these privates are shocked that this colonel is given them mashed potatoes. Surprise service. I wonder what would happen maybe in homes where there was surprise service. In our city, surprise service. Neighborhood, surprise service. The path to greatness could not be clear. Couldn't be clear. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then we need to serve. We need to see it serve each other. We need, we need to serve our city. We need to serve our world, right? Who's God calling you to serve this week? That's the question. And it's out of that mindset of service that I want to draw your attention as we prepare our hearts for communion. To Jesus, the, the simple statement, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for men. That's what Jesus did. And so this cup that's in the bag that, that you received, hang on to that bag, you're going to want to use it for the, what's left over. Uh, I want you to look at this. This morning I want you to see this as a symbol of service. This represents to me this morning service. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for men. And so this, this simple little cup with a little piece of bread, there's kind of two pieces you peel back and get the first one off of a, a little wafer that represents the, the body of Christ, His broken body. The eternal Creator God left the glory of heaven invading human history in the person of Jesus Christ. On a mission for 33 years from Bethlehem to Calvary. He always knew what was coming. He always knew what the end game was. He always knew what the goal was. Always. And it's fascinating to me as I read the gospel how, how often 
Jesus told his disciples exactly what's coming. And they never got it. Not until it was all said and done, they never got it. But Jesus knew what lay ahead. His life was a life of service. If you miss that in the Gospels, you just aren't paying attention. Up early in the morning, up late at night, serving, healing, casting out demons, healing lepers, healing blind people. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? It's a life of service for 33 years. But the ultimate act of service was when, when his body his body was beaten. The shame of being spit upon. And then nailed to the cross. Service. As Paul said in Philippians 2, obedient as a servant, obedient even unto the cross. I hope you're grateful for that this morning. It's always appropriate, I think, when we take communion that we pause. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about being careful that we don't take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. We're all unworthy, right? Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners and I'm right there with it. So it's not a matter of, are you worthy? Jesus is the one who's worthy. It's because of his worthiness and his sacrifice for sin. Um, that we stand before God forgiven and cleansed. But it's good to be reminded that as we share communion, here's an opportunity just to quietly for a moment take inventory. Because Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about let, let a man examine himself. And part of that examination might be the question, am I really in the faith? Am I really trusting Jesus? Have I truly repented of my sin and put my faith and my trust in Him? I'm trusting Him today, not myself, not my good works. I'm trusting Jesus. Uh, taking inventory. And then taking inventory and asking the Lord, so is there anything in my life right now that kind of comes between us? Any sin that needs to be confessed? Any attitude that's not, not straightened out, not squared away? Uh, and just give the Lord a moment. And so I just want to do that and take a quiet moment and and just ask that you take inventory. Father in heaven, how grateful we are this morning. For all that you've done for us, especially for what you've done for us at Calvary. And we would come this, this morning, as the scripture says, remembering Jesus, remembering his death on the cross. And in this moment, with this, this bread and this cup, we pause to remember, we pause to reflect, we pause to give thanks. As we take this bread, we're grateful for his, his broken body, for all that he endured, for all that he suffered. We're grateful. The nails through his hands and feet, the crown of thorns pressed down upon his head, the beating that he took that 
marred him almost beyond recognition. The spear in his side. His body was bruised and, and beaten, abused. And so we take this bread this morning with, with thanksgiving. We give you thanks in the name of, of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So take the bread as you reflect. Then you want to be careful as you open this little cup. There should be another little little deal that you lift that I can't get mine. There it is. So again, this this red liquid is to remind us of the blood of Jesus. And to remind us that the servant, Jesus, a servant and a king, right? There's a combination. King Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. King Jesus, who came to give his life ransom for many. And the scripture says so simply, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, there's no forgiveness of sin. The shedding of blood was necessary. It was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. No surprise. Jesus on a mission, headed to Jerusalem, headed to the cross, stopping to heal a poor, blind beggar. Everything about Jesus says service. And he gave his life a ransom for many. I've always loved that simple line, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Let's give thanks to Jesus as we take the cup together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful this morning. We're grateful for your service in our behalf. We're grateful that your service took you to Calvary. We're grateful that your service took you to that place of pain and suffering and death. Your act of service took precedence over the reality that, as the scripture says, you could have called 10,000 angels to come and rescue you. But you didn't do that. You chose to serve us. And so we're grateful. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me your great salvation, so rich and free. Thank you. And we celebrate all these things in the mighty name of our, our Savior, our servant King, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
perfect way to end our time together this morning. <laughs> wow. Got a couple of birthdays this week I want to mention. Uh, Mark Miller's birthday's today. So happy birthday, Mark. Number 83. So who's number 83? Mark Miller's number 83. Okay, that's what I thought. And uh, Don, Lan- Don Lansing has a birthday on Saturday, so happy birthday to Don. And then uh, Don and Phyllis Fisher have an anniversary also on the 11th, so happy anniversary to them. If you notice in your bulletin, we were able to uh, bring 32 boxes to the Operation Christmas Child Center last week. And so we ought to give thanks to the Lord for that and our part in that. Um, I think offering envelopes are available this morning. Are they out back? I think, I hope, because I'm going to talk about them for a minute. In your bulletin, it talks about the offering envelopes. You'll find a box with your name on it. Everybody has a number. If you don't have a box and would like a box, we'd love to give you one. We just need to know that you need one. And so there's that little paper, I think, in the bulletin where you can give us information for the directory. There's a little box you can check that you need envelopes. If you're receiving a box of envelopes, and you don't use those envelopes because you're paying online with your bank or whatever, if you would give those boxes back to us, don't just leave it out there. Give it to, to me or to one of the elders because the, the gals and the people who count the offering could use those envelopes. And if you're just going to take them home and put them in a drawer or cupboard and not use them, then... So do that for us. If you're not using them, return them to us and we'll make great use of them. Did I say that right, Sandy? I think I hope. All right. Good. Um, Heights of Grace, we've mentioned it twice. Uh, come Saturday and uh, serve Jesus and serve the city of Norwalk. Do that. Have a great week. And as you walk out these doors, who does Jesus want you to serve this week? Uh, who's on his list? Who's on his list for you? Have a great week.